So welcome again to the Comic Book Historians podcast. I have my trusty uh, co-host, Jim Thompson. Jim, how are you doing today? Hey, Alex. Good to be back. And uh, we have a guest host today, Larry King, whom I met at the Dallas Fantasy Fair. And we actually did a Jack Kirby panel together. Larry King, introduce yourselves to everybody. Hello, boys. Well, I'm Larry W. King. I'm here in uh, Denton, Texas. In the case of the Dallas Fantasy Fair, I had a long association with uh, that organization and the programmer, uh, Larry Langford, who's no longer with us now. My background has been pretty much in uh, radio and um, song production and certainly was bitten by the comics bug and really, you know, the 20th century pop culture at a pretty early age. You know, I, I really like you guys. I have listened to your podcast and enjoy your Facebook pages. And man, it's really on a high level. I mean, I think it's very conversational, but you guys are real scholars. So I'm going to enjoy uh, chatting well, thanks, with you. Thanks, Larry. That's nice. Well, that's great. Alex, well, can I um, ask David a qu- just one qu- quick question? Sure. Just point out. You that, can call me that David. Both- that's- <laughs> yeah. Larry, Larry. Did I call you Larry? <laughs> no, his name is Larry. You wanted to call him David for some reason. Well, I know why. So, Larry, do you, <laughs> do you ever get, because Alex, you're the only one of us now that is not probably constantly said, oh, I really like your work, ha, 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 because I'm Jim Thompson, meaning the author of many, yes. many hard-edged novels, and you are you are Larry King. So, Alex, do you feel deprived that you're not actually a famous person like we are? That's right. There is no famous person for me to be confused with. I can't camouflage my way into any situations based on my very neutral name. Which is nice because it really gets old to be like, oh, oh yes, I, I know your work. You're on CNN. You're old as <laughs> shit. You know, that kind of thing. You get that, Larry? Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, you know, yes, but the thing for me now is that the young people that that I work with, they don't know who he is. That finally in my life, he's now, you know, uh, an anachronism and they don't know. So I'm I'm coming out of that whole idea. Uh, oh, you're not, you got the same name as that guy. But, you know, I, because I was a DJ, I mean, even my, with my Brian Wilson interview, which is on YouTube, it's like I would say I'm not the CNN guy. I'm the rock and roll Larry King. Ah, so, nice. And there are there are lots of um, there are lots of people with that name. I think the guy that wrote the best little whorehouse in Texas, 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 uh, is named Larry King. You know, that's, oh, that's a good one. Very, very common name. So I like when I meet people, you know, with Larry. It's like, hey, we got to stick together, you know. So there's like a fraternity of Larry. So I'm good with it. It was my dad's name. That guy on CNN. That's not his real name. And you say Larry W. King, don't you? You don't necessarily say Larry. You say Larry W. King. That's the distinction. I mean, I, you know, I try to because, you know, moving forward, is, and if I'm going to do uh, any broadcasting or whatever, I, I want to use my own name. I don't want to use a stage name or anything like that. So, yeah, I, I tend to, to say that. My middle name is Wayne, and there's also a fraternity of men with the middle name of Wayne. You know, it's statistically the top choice of middle name for serial killers, you know. John Wayne Gacy, Elmer Wayne Henley, you know. So even more so than the Club of Larry's is the fraternity of men with the middle name of Wayne. Right. So today what we're doing is you we're should, talking I about... Would take, I would take all of this out. I, I don't... I, anyway. <laughs> no, it's what, we, it's what we live for. All right, that's We fine. live for those moments. If they're moments of humanity, Larry, that's what we're all about here at the Comic Book Historian If you could put, like, podcast. some reverb or, um, you know, So, uh... <laughs> So basically today what we're doing is talking about various archival works in comic history, various ways of presenting uh, archival material, as well as discussing archival material in comic book history books that in some way uh, contribute to our understanding of comic book history in general. Each one of us is talking about a different topic today, which will be really fascinating. I'm going to start off. I know you guys are ready to go, too. I've always been a proponent of understanding that the pulp history of magazines is a direct contributor to the genesis of the comic books, especially the golden age of comic books. And a lot of those golden age comics take their cues from the pulp magazines, a lot of the substance, the material. And we've talked about that a lot, like Doc Savage was a progenitor of Superman and the shadow was a progenitor to Batman, etc. But it goes deeper than that. Even uh, after the golden age of comics, they a lot of the material was still being obtained from pulp magazines and science fiction digests that were concurrently being published. So what I did was I read a book called Astounding by Alec Navala Lee, 
which discusses the golden age of science fiction in the 20th century, centered around four interesting men who were essentially the backbones of 20th century science fiction. Isaac Asimov, who we all know from his Foundation series and his robot artificial intelligence books, and Robert Heinlein, who wrote books like Starship Troopers, and L. Ron Hubbard, who wrote a lot of science fiction in the 30s and 40s before creating Dianetics, and John W. Campbell Jr., who was the editor of Astounding Science Fiction magazine that started around the late, late 1930s, like 38 or 39 or so. And what it does, this book, is it talks about the four guys, their early childhoods, their weird relationships with their parents, right. how a couple of them entered the military, and then they all around the same time started to submit work to Astounding Science Fiction magazine. John W. Campbell Jr. ended up starting his work as editor of Astounding, which was owned by Street and Smith at the time. And when he became editor, he started having this knack of understanding which books are really pertinent to that historical time. And he essentially molded people like Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and L. Ron Hubbard to an extent to try to get the best out of these guys by saying, you know, I like this draft, but I wanted to have a little more of this. I like that draft, but I wanted to have a little more of that. And then he'd send them back and they'd send it back to him. And essentially, these four men, when they intersect, they start fomenting a lot of ideas and bouncing ideas off each other. And it just explodes in the science fiction magazines. What's interesting is the world's first science fiction convention in 1939 in New York, a lot of comic book conventions still model themselves after that first science fiction convention that happened in the late 30s. Even Superman was created in a science fiction background and an alien on Earth. A lot of that came from Siegel and Schuster reading science fiction pulp magazines. So there is a relationship. But what's cool is where these guys go after that. So in World War II, Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein, L. Sprague de Camp, who wrote a lot of Conan stuff, um, they actually served in the military at, the, at a Navy yard, and they have really interesting time in the Philadelphia Navy yard, just kind of uh, researching, you know, chemistry and trying to bounce some ideas off. It was kind of boring, but once the war was over, each one kind of goes their own way, but still submitting books to Astounding. And what's really interesting is Isaac Asimov really starts exploding with his science fiction in the late 40s, early 50s, and so does Robert Heinlein. I don't know if you guys know much about Robert Heinlein, but in 1959, he wrote Starship Troopers, which was him shifting mentally from being kind of a left-wing socialist to more of a right-wing, hyper-militaristic right-wing guy. And that shift sure. existentially is manifested in his Starship Troopers book in 1959. So he became a huge Barry Goldwater fan and uh, felt like some of the later guys like Ronald Reagan were not right-wing enough for him. L. Ron Hubbard, which was really a really fascinating story. Jim, Jim loves L. Ron, L. Ron Hubbard. He, uh, but basically, after he was the only one of the four guys who actually be in the military at, in combat. Although he didn't actually see direct combat, he was the closest of all of them. So the other three guys completely worshipped L. Ron Hubbard and thought, man, this guy's like a real adventurer. What's interesting is after war, though, he had some post-traumatic stress. It didn't work out quite the way he wanted. He had some medical problems. And he starts experimenting with the Alistair Crowley crowd and some cult stuff and uh, trying to uh, experiencing into the occult. And there are some interesting stories of Robert Heinlein and some of the guys like kind of sleeping with each other's wives, kind of. And actually, there's a lot of some group sex stuff kind of happening, which was really fascinating I, to see. About I think I need to pick another people. book. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what's interesting is psychologically, they kind of go through what L. Ron Hubbard was going through in the 40s where it manifests in him self-actualizing himself out of that kind of depressive funk. And through that, he came up with the Dianetics idea of self-auditing sure. and becoming clear. And that was happening as these science fiction books were all genesising around the same time. So it becomes this really interesting thing where the first appearance of Dianetics was in John W. Campbell's Astounding Science Fiction magazine in May 1950. It came out in that magazine before it came up with the Dianetics book six months or so later. So it's actually a science fiction manifesto in the beginning, but with true psychological ramifications. There is a whole chapter devoted to how John W. Campbell Jr. and L. Ron Hubbard essentially synergized the initial Dianetics form. But what was really fascinating about that relationship was how guys like A.E. Van Vogt, who there have been 70s science fiction magazines that have comic book versions of A.E. Van Vogt stuff. A.E. Van Vogt was also in the initial Dianetics movement. 
And so all these guys are they're, they're bouncing philosophy and the cybernetics of the human mind all in this time. And this would then reflect on some of their work later on that then made comic books later. There's a big blowout. L. Ron Hubbard goes off to create Dianetics, his own version of it, and then Scientology. Then the other guys went off just to work in science fiction in general. And a lot of the concepts of Dianetics and Scientology was making it into their science fiction stuff, too. So this evolution of these guys was really was just really fascinating from beginning to end. Also, another thing is Isaac Asimov. Did you know he had AIDS? I, yes. I did not know that. Yeah, he had AIDS. He caught it from a blood transfusion in 1983 from a heart surgery, and it essentially just wrecked his uh, life all the way up to when he died in 1992. But through that time, with no physical energy, he still hammered out book after book after book, ideas about artificial intelligence and alien stories and things. And so what's fascinating to me is how when these books were huge pop cultural relevant phenomena at the time, comic book writers are reading this stuff and then putting some of these concepts into the comic book. So at any rate, it's a really worthy book, Astounding, by <laughs> Alec Navala Lee. It's about 450 pages, but it's a, it was, it's a real ride. I, I was really blown away by it. Yep. If Ronnell Hubbard wasn't part of this conversation, it would be easier for me to talk about this. Because I don't think he's the same thing as uh, Asimov is a real hero of mine. And he's not just a science fiction writer, which, but he wrote about everything. I mean, he wrote as a scientist. He wrote as a historian. I have his uh, books on Greek mythology, and he goes through all of those stories. He, he's just a really fascinating Da Vinci kind of a style guy. He uh, is a, a man of absolutely, yeah. talent. And the Foundation books are some of my favorite science fiction, even though they don't have a lot of characterization in them necessarily. And um, I think Asimov was also like a face of science fiction to the general public, where those other guys were not, I mean, you know, L. Ron Hubbard maybe, but, you know, Asimov was a television figure. He helped to save Star Trek and stuff like that. And, and his battle with AIDS, you know, to be a guy with AIDS and whatever in 1983, you know, you, you know, you were on a short list kind of. So he popularized the culture by being a guy that you would see in magazines and such. Right. Yeah, he had that Asimov science fiction magazine that started in 78 or so. And his picture is right there with the logo or with the uh, lettering of the titling. And he was a huge figure. Um, yeah, he was and, the Hitchcock of science fiction. And that he was not sure. just because he had that persona. You knew what he looked like. Yeah. The way yeah. that you did about Hitchcock in terms of suspense thrillers. Um, um, what's, what's really fascinating that you guys mentioned, uh, single out Asimov, he was the one that was actually, the only one that was actually a true scientist, which is interesting. He was huh. the one that actually had a degree in science where he was a true biochemist. He actually did science research and wrote nonfiction science books and textbooks. And he was faculty. He was actually a, a, a faculty member. The other three guys were not. And what's interesting is they make that distinct, they distinguish that here as he came from a genuine place. Whereas the other guys that are science fiction writers, they came from a speculative place. They really note that there is a psychological difference there, that the speculative types, they start believing things that aren't real true. So John W. Campbell, although he left, you know, Dianetics, and he and his wife would still audit each other for decades after he left Dianetics, right. by the way. But he would also start believing in contraptions that didn't really ever work. And he would invest his money in other people's contraptions because he thought that the government was suppressing research and he was believing these really cockamamie things. And Asimov would just roll his eyes to this stuff saying, this is just completely ridiculous what you're saying here. And Robert Heinlein, as he got older, he became less in touch with the science aspect of the science fiction and more into his politicizing about things. Whereas Asimov is, is the one that actually truly stayed scientific from beginning to end. He was the true scientist of the four. He was always, always saying dirty jokes left and right, and always against women's will, was always pinching their butts, slapping their butts over and over and over and over again to a point where he was actually talked to about this and people accepted it like, well, that's just Isaac, you know, and even Harlan Ellison was actually shocked by this behavior where everyone started getting very uncomfortable with introducing him to a female friend of theirs because he was always slapping their butts, pitching their butts, and like chasing them up the stairs and <laughs> acting truly. He was the dirty old man. On, hey. He was the dirty old man on campus, actually. The dirty old man on campus. So 
Heinlein is interesting, though, in what you talked about, the politicization, because his book, Stranger in a Strange Land, was probably embraced by the left and the hippies. And that- and the hippies more i mean the word grok was was such an expression of those people who right. would have found his actual politics to be abhorrent but they didn't know him right. they just knew what that book was about in terms of free love and interestingly i think a form of a cult that that comes from that you can trace back to what hubbard ends up doing and right. in fact even even asimov with harry selden becomes a cult figure so they all do have this notion of of that of following a questionable leader stay with us we'll be right back my name is koji and i'm michelle and this is the japanese america podcast so this is where we look at all things japanese american we'll bring alive the history culture and people that make up this diverse community in this month's episode we'll examine koji's unique family history to help bring this story alive we brought on actor and comedian derek mio He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Right. And what's interesting is they get ideas from each other. So I'm not, I don't want to get too much into the details of Scientology and Dianetics because I know that that's very personal for some people. But that whole aspect of a federation built on human sanity and saving the world from itself and its faults, you know, that aspect makes it into a lot of science fiction. Star Trek has that. The Galactic Republic of Star Wars was about that. So I find that really interesting. Also, the atomic bomb was a huge influence on John W. Campbell, and he would guide a lot of the writers to focus his writing around the atomic bomb. He and L. Ron Hubbard felt that Dianetics was the way to use science fiction and critical thinking to save humanity from the bomb, to evolve humans to match the technology that was coming out. And he would put that into his science fiction as well. So this was really interesting. Also, there were some books that they would talk about that, you know, the EC Comics was directly copying a lot of these books in the 50s. That Wally Woodron story about the girl that was a stowaway on the ship, and they only had a limited amount of oxygen to get and food to get the people from A to B. So what did they do? They threw the girl out the airlock, right? And uh, that was in a Wally Woodron story. And what's funny is the original story, John W. Campbell was the editor, and when he got that, when he got that story sent to him, he kept sending it back to the writer until they threw the girl out the airlock in the original story. John W. Campbell was like, why would you save the girl if there's not enough resources? Here, I'm going to send this back to you. Send it back to me until she's dead. And so they finally killed her off. And then he published it, which I found was interesting. They do go through Frank Herbert uh, actually released Dune in uh, Astounding Science Fiction when it was renamed into Analog Science Fiction. And John W. Campbell was the one that published Dune. And he kept publishing it until he didn't like where Frank Herbert was taking Paul Atreides. And so then Frank Herbert then took that chapter to somewhere else. But Dune actually premiered in this as well. So, so in, the uh, case of, in the case of EC, they pirated uh-huh. some of that stuff until like Bradbury says, you know, that's mine. And then they made a gentleman's agreement. Well, a, yeah. You know, I mean, it's not uh, it's the not Bradbury like stuff. Were, yes, they did. They weren't proactive about it, but it still worked out, I guess. Right. Alex, does the book does the book talk about illustrators at all? Since that's the, the, one of the comic aspects is that that crossover with the illustrations of those books. Now, I would say this book focuses more on the stories that, and a lot of the stories were taken from the comic people and the illustrators, but they didn't really focus on illustrations. They do talk about Harry Harrison in this book, though, who was Wally Wood's collaborator in 1950 as they joined EC Comics together. And they also talk about Forrest Ackerman. Forrest Ackerman, I don't know if you guys know this, he was a big science fiction fan guy from the late 30s. He created the word. He takes credit for creating the word science fiction. So then uh, Forrest Ackerman, who um, actually co-created one of the early science fiction fanzines with Mort Weisinger and Julius Schwartz, whom are also mentioned in the book, they talk about him and their involvement with science fiction and Julius Schwartz and Mort Weisinger being pulp agents for some of these writers. They do also mention that Forrest Ackerman was actually present in that first year and a half of Dianetics as well with L. Ron Hubbard and John W. Campbell Jr. and A.E. Van Vogt. So I found that that was really interesting because we associate Forrest Ackerman with the famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, not necessarily this other stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool. 
Hey, I went to the Acker Mansion in August of 01 mm-hmm. and was Forey's guest in whatever Acker Mansion was there. I think it was it was a big Acker Mansion. I think he downsized after we were there. But yeah, you know, Forey was one of those first fans. And just imagine if you're this kid and you're going up to like whatever Willis O'Brien and says, you know, can I have your scraps from King Kong, you know, and this kind of stuff that he was on the scene at that time period, you know, that you could approach all these people. I mean, it's amazing. Again, it's the idea that as younger people, we can't imagine that somebody was cool enough to do it before we did. But right. but yeah, Julie Schwartz and, and Mort and Bory and maybe Bradbury may be in. There's a whole bunch of guys in that clique. And when you see Forey, when you see Forey from that time period, Forey's like dressed like uh, Buck Rogers or whatever. Forey's like the original cosplay guy, right? And he's always and I want to use this word today a lot. Jodpers, is that right? You know those crazy pants. We'll talk about more characters wearing those pants. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, for you know, I mean, and and who knows how Forey got some of those things in his collection? I mean, I love Forey, but he's the guy. He was the fanboy archive. Right. Yeah, it was cool. always great at San Diego Comic-Con to see Forey, uh, Harryhausen, and Bradbury all on stage, sometimes joined by Julius Sports as well. But that was always so much fun to listen to all of them. They used to do this at uh, in Los Angeles at, when they would show Harryhausen films, too. They would all come to it and be on for Q's and A's. It's a real passing to see all those guys. I met a lot of those guys. All uh, of those guys? I, probably, but... I knew uh, Harry Housen a little bit, good guy, and uh, Julie and I were, were good friends. So maybe a couple more of those guys. But I love that, you know, a wonderful group of men, the fact that they all got together and collaborated at that time, you know. Yeah. And, and one it, last thing John W. Campbell Jr., I don't know if you guys know this, but he wrote the original story that they based the John Carpenter 1982 movie, The Thing, on. That was John W. Campbell Jr. Wait, you're talking about you're talking about the John Carpenter film, but but that's but you got to go back and, and talk about Howard Hawks Richard Nyby film. I mean, it's oh, yes. that was a remake. Yeah, yeah, that was right because that, that and you're talking about the 1951 one uh, that Ray Harryhausen. What's the um, story? Is it Foghorn or who goes work there? From, that the thing is based on is that who goes there? Anyway, yeah, who goes there? That's right. Right. Okay. All right. Well, now, uh, Larry, let's uh, let's hear what you have to say about uh, now. Uh, tell the audience which book you picked. Okay. Well, you know, Alex and I had a conversation about this initially, and the book that I brought is by the uh, author Jules Pfeiffer, and it's called The Great Comic Book Heroes. And um, so Pfeiffer was born in about twenty nine. He became a assistant to Will Eisner at the age of seventeen. And, you know, he went on to it's he's an interesting guy to write a book on the comic history because he's such an accomplished guy himself. He's sort of a guy that's you know, a scholarly guy and he's looking at comics a little bit like it's, uh, you know, a pulp thing or sort of a, a lesser work, I guess. You know, Pfeiffer himself is a member of the Comic Book Hall of Fame, you know, looking that up. And he wrote many movies. He wrote Carnal Knowledge. Phantom Tollbooth, you know, so he's a very accomplished cartoonist and screenwriter. And, you know, I think Wikipedia says he was like the most popular satirist in the 60s, he's an editorial cartoonist. So, you know, he certainly has the cred to be writing this kind of thing. This book was originally published in 1965, so it's described as one of the first comic book histories. I don't know when Richard Lupoff wrote All in Color for Dime. You know, or some other books that might be available. The other comic book history I had as a kid was called Comics, I think, by maybe Les Daniels. I think so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it has like a lot of sort of smutty stuff in the back back of it. So as a little kid, I had to rip those pages out so mom and dad wouldn't take the book out <laughs> of my library, you know. But so anyway, you know, the for kids that were interested in comics at that time, there were seemingly limited resources. Whereas this book, this Pfeiffer book, you guys. And again, it depends on like how old you are. I was born in 1962 and got interested in comics at about a 10 year old in, in the, about 72. And so I, we would want, I mean, my friend discovered, you know, the magic of remaindered books. And, you know, the books that you bought were depending on how cheap they were. Okay. 
And they were wonderful books, Chester Gould books, Little Orphan Annie books, and wonderful books that you could just buy for pennies. You know, there's a great Buck Rogers book from that era. But the cheapest of them all, the most ubiquitous, the book that you saw everywhere was The Great Comic Book Heroes by Jules Pfeiffer. And if you guys ever seen the cover of this book with this sort of, it's sort of like a Joe Schuster or Superman illustration, but it's sort of like they've done a Roy Lichtenstein on it or something kind of. You know, because there's like Bende Dots, you know, and that kind of thing. Right. I can remember when the mall opened in my town of Beaumont, Texas in about 1974, and you walked in and there was a bookstore. And on there, there was a table full, a table full of the great comic book heroes by Jules Pfeiffer with a honking, flashing red 50 cent or a dollar sticker on it, defacing the cover forever, you know. So for years, if you went into a bookstore, you would see this book, The Great Comic Book Heroes by Jules Pfeiffer. The book has an I don't know if you want you want to call it an essay or a text by Pfeiffer that's about 75 pages long. Then, wonder of wonders, it's full of golden age comic book reprints. And at that time, for us to see a, a glimpse of Captain Marvel when it was he was, you know, not in publication or a plastic man or things like that, this was a very important book, you know, to people of this era. And you can look in this book and like, I don't know, this is like the 16th pressing of it or something. So, you know, culturally, it's interesting, I think, about this book. A lot of people had to have owned it. So it is a story of the beginning of the comics industry. You know, Pfeiffer says that he was at the right age for to get slammed by the Depression and, you know, all these things that were happening at that age. And... The origin of comic books. And I'm interested in like pre comic comics. Like, you know, if Superman is 1938, well, if you watch, let's say, if you're a fan of like the Little Rascals or Our Gang and you see Spanky and it's 1932 or something and there's a magazine in the comic, or if it's a Popeye short and Popeye's, there's Popeye books, you know. So there were these books, you know, that existed pre comics. Pfeiffer was a guy that was there to read the first comics. Like, for instance, Famous Fantasy number 1. I mean, we all know that cover, but, you know, you ever really thought about what was inside of Famous Fantasy number 1? And Famous Funnies is actually the book. I'm trying to say Famous Funnies number 1. So Pfeiffer talks about these books, you know, that they were publishing in D.C., that they were lame, you know, that whatever. The major premise of Jules Pfeiffer book he put forward in 1964 some tropes about comic books. And really, the question was whether his premise is still where things are at today. And, you know, initially, guys, I thought that maybe we were, I thought we were all doing the same book, but never mind. You, have you guys read this book, this Pfeiffer book? I have it in my hand right now. I read it the same. I'm, um, I'm 59. I had the same experience as you. Got it at Walden's Books. I think for a dollar, maybe. And uh, it was my first book on comics. But the Les Daniels yellow comics book that has the underground stuff was around the same time that I bought this. And those two books were it for me in terms of realizing there was something and a history to degrees, it. In some degrees, it was it because you couldn't find any other ones. There was no Internet. You know? No, you I got this book eventually. But, but yeah, it was hard. And, you know, my comment about our friend uh, James Steranko is, you know, his books were always expensive in that time period. History of the Comics by Steranko didn't go remaindered. That's why, as a child, I couldn't buy it, where this book was like a dollar. So, Jim, you read this book, and the premise, I think, one of the premises of Pfeiffer is that, of course, newspaper cartoonists were the bomb. They were the greatest. And the guys that drew comics in 1935, 36, 37 did not have the talent. They were inferior to the newspaper strips. And that's sort of an old argument, you know. And it's certainly if you're talking about, you know, literally before the good artists came in, you know, there's a, certainly an era of comics where, where anything, some guys would publish anything, Gleason, you know, or whatever. So anyway, that's his premise, that the newspaper strips are inherently better. And then I think the, the other premise is that pretty much everything is a swipe. 
You know, I mean, when you talk about like who created what and so forth, that pretty much all of those, you know, heroes were amalgamations of literary precursors. There's a couple of things I would I would say on that. I think he's kinder to his old boss Eisner than to say he thought he was inferior. I think he he gave Eisner a lot of credit in the spirit section of this book about his innovations. Well, and uh, yes, Eisner was his mentor. But one of the things about Pfeiffer is you can look in the indicia, if I'm using the word right, and you can see that Bob Kane helped him and Jerry Robinson helped him. And these guys, you know, Kane didn't necessarily have the bad reputation in 1965. You know, he was creating the Batman TV series. He was a Hollywood right. guy. He was a star. Right. So you can see who Pfeiffer's... Getting his info from? Yeah. I mean, for him to praise Bob Kane... Give me a break. Give me a break. You know, I mean, but what he said is actually very accurate. It's just I don't think Kane did it. He just swiped it from, you know, books. We can actually find the books that Kane swiped from, you know. But anyway, just like. Yeah, it, it's touched on something I was going to add is that when this came out in 1965, superheroes were there was a mainstream consciousness or curiosity about superheroes. So. You know, the Batman TV show was about to explode in 66. Yeah. And so there was demand for people to learn more about the superhero. So although this book was almost kind of like a curmudgeon kind of approach to more the older comic superheroes and, you know, how much value they're worth or how much value they have, I think that the book publishers were really ready to mass produce this book and sell it because the public wanted to know about superheroes and their origins. There are some other things also, as some people have noted, that that was the one way you could actually get reprints of those Golden Age comics was through that book, because it wasn't like you had digital stuff online that you could just oh, research and but, but, uh, and and just find that stuff. So it was it, a good source collect- for reprints as well. I didn't mean to talk over you, but, you know, the collector's market in most cities were was so undeveloped. But if you lived in a great place like, you know, if you were like Billy Moomy and you were buying at the you know Hollywood poster store or something, I mean, you know, some guys had like awesome bookstores. There was one in Dallas wow. that had everything, and it was like a late 80s, early 90s thing. You could go in there, and you know there was a stack of Wiz comics this guy turned me on to, and he wanted to, me to buy them for him. I was like, I'm going to buy them all up, dude. You know, Occasionally, right. you find these oases of, of, of books. But what I wanted to say is, is that you know, Captain Marvel, forget about it. We never saw like books from the 50s at the used bookstore. You know? I mean, you might see some 60s books. But I never saw books from the 40s. I mean, not to say there might not be here one here here and there, but, you know, Plastic Man. So let me jump back into the actual book. Is that all right? So um, anyway, so you have this essay by Pfeiffer, and I think it's a really relevant book for you to read. I think the last time I saw this book in, an, in a bookstore, it didn't have the Golden Age comics anymore. I think I saw an actual edition of it that was just Pfeiffer's essay. Like, what's, okay. That's right. That's the yep. point. But anyway, so, you know, looking through what we have here in this, there's a Superman origin story, which is very, you know, iconic. You know, the doctor says, what the? He's trying to in- inoculate Superman, and Superman says, try again, doc. And see, to me, comics is all about that. You know, Superman getting struck by lightning. It tickles, you know. Gentlemen, Krypton is doomed. I mean, I really right. like the thick-headedness of it. You know, I'm not really interested in... Where whatever kind of continuity crazy stories are doing today. I mean, look, here's Superman racing a train, for God's sake. And, you know, one of the things I wonder about you guys, so <laughs> I, 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 I uh, wondered about this doctor, and he's trying to inoculate Superman, and it looks like the doctor holds in his hand like a, a hat pin. Is this censored art? And in, in 1938, was he holding a hypo in his hand? You know, right. I mean, because you read these old books and you say, like, well, why does Detective 27 look like that? Oh, the, you know, many of these pages were censored, and it's hard to see them sometimes, you know, when they have hypodermic needles and things like that, you know, that, that they ultimately had to take out. So, Jim, maybe you can look in the front of the book and see what the Superman story is that we're looking at. But it's a wonderful, I guess, Joe Schuster story. You can tell me if that's the case. And the thing about what Pfeiffer says about Schuster is that he says that it's all about the design. And, you know, I'm interested in in art that's coded. You know, like Pablo Picasso coded his work. You know what I'm saying? And so when I look at this Schuster artwork, to me, 
it's all right there for you visually. You know what I'm saying? It's just the, the, the storytelling seems so clear to me. But I'm sure a lot right. of people find uh, Schuster to be an ugly artist. To me, I, I, he's, I'm just a big fan. So that just puts me out of step with, you know, whatever, any Barry Windsor Smith fan, you know, whatever, because I love this golden age artwork. Right. You know? And Pfeiffer's yeah. on board with this, too. He gets it. He talks about, yeah. even while, while he's being critical of the early pre-superhero ones, uh, like Hickey, when he gets to to him, he's like, yeah, this is the real thing. There's an action to this, and nobody does skyscrapers the same weird way that, that, that he does. He's appreciative of the art, I would say, in, in this when he talks about Schuster. Well, in the case of Superman, it's almost like, and I'm going to use some terms, and if I'm wrong, correct me, because I say this all the time. But it's like it's in the public unconsciousness or in the zeitgeist, if you will, that when Superman came out in 1938, part of the premise is, is that the Times created Superman, you know, that when people saw Action Comics number one, they said, yes, that guy. You know right. what I'm saying? I mean, they, that they, they got, they, there was a need for him, you know, in 1938. And, you know, that's a revenge. This is a revenge story here by Jerry Siegel. You know what I mean? Superman. He was a guy. He was a vigilante. And he was going to come out. And he was going to punch you in the nose. Well, in the in the chapter on the Superman I mean, I mean, chapter, he actually says that Pfeiffer says that our reaction was less how original than, but of course, because right. Superman was a, an obvious thing to have happened at this point. And then but you know, so then so then you have some artwork when you get to the Joker's origin. Is that mainly Jerry Robinson art on that story? I would think so. And and I w wanted to mention, he actually, Pfeiffer, thanks Jerry Robinson above everybody else in the uh, yeah. acknowledgement. So he did, I mean, whereas he talked to Kane and Eisner and everybody, Robinson gave him an awful lot of material on this. You know, but I'll mm -hmm. tell you another thing, though, is as much as he gives Bob Kane a pass, he says that Superman is the real thing. And he's pretty critical of Batman, the idea that you got to put on, you know, your bad underwear, you know, all that. He says all Superman has to do is get up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's a good line. And in fact, talking about Superman for one more second, two things. The, the choice that he picked for the piece is interesting. The uh, locomotive flood story, because uh -huh. so much of that early Superman is Superman being anti-establishment and fighting for justice meaning beating up uh, wife beaters or taking on the city establishment or the the mining industry or, uh, or other things, a social justice kind of a, a an yeah. aspect to it. And he Definitely picks a vigilante. He picks a yeah. story that doesn't have that, that's him against the environment. And it's it's interesting that that's the one that he picked. He doesn't talk yeah. in the preface at all about that aspect, the social aspect of Superman in those early pre-World War II days. And but, you know, the reprint... But, you know, it, it, it's funny. Well, it's the text. Right. And, yeah, uh, and it's, I'll, it's, also, it's something that I've noticed about... I remember Jim and I have talked about this, but I look at, before Whitney Ellsworth comes in to kind of sterilize Superman, yeah. to make it more kid-friendly in 1941-ish, those early Supermans did not read like... I, I felt it was more like the word you're using, vigilante, almost more like the Punisher, where he didn't care if the bad guy lived or died based on his intervention. And he wasn't just going against coal miners. He was also going against corrupt public institutions as well that were like these government funded institutions. He's also going against like corrupt publicly funded orphanages and corrupt mayors and things like that. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, I would say that he was he was basically the I think he started out as the id of Jerry Siegel. What Jerry Siegel, angry and pissed off, would do to somebody if he had Superman's powers. I well, think Siegel, that it was Whitney Siegel's Ellsworth father that made was murdered, it. You know, right. Well, and what happened with Siegel's father was because I read the you know Matt Rizzuto is our friend, and he sent me his autopsy report of Jerry Siegel's dad. And in the autopsy report, it says something along the lines of heart attack during three Negroes robbing his store. And that's what it had written on this autopsy report. And those are the autopsy reports words, not mine. But um, that's what it had written in there. So it was definitely some act of crime was happening. And he and Jerry Siegel likely wanted revenge. You know, Gerard Jones, he wrote incorrectly that 
his dad was gunned down in a robbery as if he was Bruce Wayne's father. But that's not what happened. He had a heart attack during a robbery is what went down. And Jerry Singer was angry. And that angry that anger shows in those those first two years of Superman when I read it. Yeah, I mean, Superman had a political line. I don't think he was necessarily, you know, Republican or Democrat, but, you know, he he had some kind of uh, code or mission, you know, in those early years. I would say he was an FDR almost socialist in those first two years before the war. Of course, giving him Hitler to fight, I mean, it probably changed him completely at that point. Well, it certainly made him more powerful. Uh, hey, so again, I just wanted to emphasize what Jim said that, you know, this is not necessarily a typical Joe Schuster story that got printed in this book, but it is a wonderful one. It really emphasizes Schuster's strengths. So that's a good thing. Right. You know, before we run out of time on this, I want to get to this, like, because there's a couple of guys here that I know. Nice example of the Human Torch, which is, I guess, Carl uh, Burgos, Burgos, and a nice looking... Uh, you know, wonderful, pulpy, golden age artwork, but but not ugly. I mean, except in a 1940s way. Uh, right. Then we go down to the Flash origin. It's interesting to see any of these characters that actually, you know, that they made any good use of. Part of the deal is, is as you deal with continuity that's getting up to 100 years, some of these heroes yeah. are so set in the World War II era that includes, like, the Fantastic Four, which they're rebooting right now, you know? I mean, you know, those guys were World War II vets. They knew Nick Fury. They wanted to fight yeah. the commies, the space race. Right. And uh, that's all I'm really caring about on those guys. Wonderful, wonderful Flash origin. I think this is, a you know, a very well-drawn story by this guy, Harry Lambert. Do you guys know much? The Flash guy? Harry yeah, Lambert. You mean the go- Golden Age Flash artist, Harry Lambert? Yeah. That's, I don't know much about it. Did Schubert draw Flash or did Infantino draw Golden Age Flash? Well, Infantino did draw some Golden Age Flash toward the end of its run. And then he, of course, yeah. drew the first of the Silver Age one. Yes. So listen, when you get to the Green Lantern, I knew Martin O'Dell. Oh, yeah? Oh, cool. And, well, you know, the deal about Marty was, is that I met him in maybe 1990, and he was sort of an older guy, and, and maybe he'd come to back to comics late. Somebody said, you know, you could go and do these shows, you know, in your golden years. I think they were young enough that, that he and Carrie Nodell were, were traveling. And yeah. I feel like guys like, you know, a guy like Martin Nodell, does he deserve a big fat check or not? You know, yes. I don't know. To see Martin Nodell... Next to Julie Swartz, you can see where Julie and I, Julie was, I love Julie to death, but he was still like the company man. So when he and Marty yeah. would be in a panel that Julie, you know, might, might throw out some parameters, you know, to the conversation. I don't know that DC Comics is, is, is acknowledged Marty as a co-creator of the Green Lantern. And, you know, chances are it's probably Bill Finger thing. And they just said, go draw it or something. I mean, I mean, that's not the way Marty tells it. You know, he said he went and thought right. about it. Maybe they had the name, the Green Lantern, and he, you know, visualized it. So look here. You have Alan Scott. By the way, he's wearing those pants I'm talking about, the Jodhpurs, <laughs> that I'm going to buy some Jodhpurs. But there are some pretty panels here that Marty drew, you know, of, like, the guy making the evil Green Lantern. I think that looks pretty. And the crazy guy who sanity is restored by the Lantern and, so anyway, I don't know that every story I've seen by Martin O'Dell was as attractive as this one, but that's a nice looking story there, that Green Lantern uh, right. origin story. Right. And his and costume also, is it's only I, in one panel. It's only that yeah, last panel that's where right. you actually see the costume. And, you know, and I would say that Alan Scott is a character that's probably been, you know, ruined as they continue to reboot those characters, you know. I mean, if he ever... Was any, I mean, you know, that, I mean, this golden age Green Lantern, you know, with this wooden, you know, and he had some of these guys ended up in my mind, they ended up being negatively influenced by having those dumb comic sidekicks, you know? Right, right, absolutely. That's what five for Yeah, also, uh, one last thing, Russ. He didn't like that. He didn't like the kids, the sidekicks. I'm talking about, like, you know, the woozy winks types, you know? So uh, the two two quick things I want to interject there is the Green Lantern, probably more a Bill Finger thing. He was a pulp reader, and that was based on the Gray Lensman pulp series by E.E. E. Smith, who is also I mentioned that. actually in that astound in that in the uh, astounding book. Then um, and I then believe the second, that. 
Hey, hey, I believe that. But, you know, Marty has his name. He signed the first story, you know. So. Right, 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 right. And then also Russ Manning wrote a review on the Great Comic Heroes by Jules Pfeiffer. Russ Manning wrote that uh, in a fanzine a year or so later. And he wrote that it was too depressing, nebbishy, and not a happy way of approaching those Golden Age characters. That Russ Manning feels like he would have approached it in a more lighter, happier sort of way than this neurotic East Coast approach that Pfeiffer took. So I just want to throw that out there that in the comic book historians Facebook group, if you search Russ Manning Jules Pfeiffer, you'll see I posted that review up there. It's really interesting. Hey, let me let me just comment one thing. If you're 11 years old, you probably didn't get to that, you know, erudite text right. for a year true. later. So, in right. you know, thank you, Russ Manning, but that book is still very important because the artwork is the bomb. I, yeah, that's great. I, I want to add, I, I think the artwork's great. I wish that, that he'd been able to put a, a CC back more than just that one page in there. But for legal reasons, he was it, you still couldn't publish Captain Marvel at the time. So we only get a, a tiny glance at Beck's Captain Marvel during that period. But the two things that I would say is I'm a, I'm a fan of the, the Pfeiffer stuff, and I disagree with any criticism of it. I love this text that he does. But one thing from a uh, just an interest point would be anyone that has seen or likes Tarantino's what's the name Sorry. of the movie that the the the, uh, the killing the uh, the bride one Kill Bill Kill Bill Kill Bill the second uh, Kill Bill Part Two takes that speech directly from Pfeiffer which I think is significant. A lot of people give the credit to Umberto Eco, but it's really Pfeiffer that says that that Clark Kent is how Superman sees the rest of us. And it's in this book, in that chapter, that little thing about Superman, he talks about the whole notion of Clark Kent is how Superman sees the rest of humanity. And I think that's a fascinating, very smart point that comes directly from Pfeiffer. And then uh, Tarantino uses it in that famous speech by, by Bill. I believe that That's the great. book is filled with quotable quotes, like when Pfeiffer says, if they'd given us a Wonder Woman with balls, we'd really have something to deal with, you know? I, I mean, you know, and we all pondered. I mean, this this book really set a million kids on their destiny uh, to be comic book historians. I'm glad you pointed out Wonder Woman, though, because I think that's his biggest mistake is I don't think he understands Wonder Woman at all in this. He no. talks about it as being a group think that it's something that corporate came up with, which historically, as we know now, could not be farther from the truth. And Harry Peter is one of the more interesting artists of that national DC period. And I think he doesn't, he doesn't get that. Pfeiffer doesn't, but we should move on to, to me. You know, but you know, Wonder Woman is pretty much a golden age character. And I think when you get into that, uh, whatever that Andrew and Esposito era, it was just ugly. You know what I'm saying? I think that character, that character was uh, wasted for decades, you know, but I'll go with H.G. Yeah. Peter. And then, and uh, yeah, exactly. Peter. Pfeiffer also is, calls Talking Tawny a villain, which tells me that, that I don't think he really remembers Captain Marvel very well when, he, when he's doing this 20 years later. Well, when you look at all kinds of heroes and they're like Plastic Man and you expect him to say something about it and he doesn't. I mean, he clearly had his premise and it was mainly that Superman was was when you deal with those ragtag heroes that were thrown together in that era, you know, Superman is the zeitgeist, you know? And right. on to Jim. Okay. And, 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 and Jim did, and Jim and I did talk a little bit about this before, that he did miss the point of Marston's writing and the free, and the free open uh, love of um, women and the bondage and the sororities that were in the Golden Age, one woman. There's a lot of interesting panels that Pfeiffer could have touched upon, um, but did not. So Well, and maybe he shouldn't have, you know? I mean, again, <laughs> when you deal with, the, when you deal with the, that book, this Pfeiffer book, as Jim sort of said, you know, it is what it is, and it's brilliant, you know? And there we go. End of the story. All right. So for my section, oh. I'm, I'm going to do something a, a, a little bit different and try to uh-huh. keep it short, because this is about thing that we're going to Alex and I are going to do on on a semi regular basis where we do these talking about reprinted books or archives or, or looking at the past in a different way than we usually do. I want to look at when you do reprints, when you do archives, one of the aspects is coloring or recoloring 
and the paper stock and what it is and how that yeah. takes you down an entirely different avenue. And the, the two main books I want to talk about would be both releases this year. One would be uh, the re-release of the Tops, Mike Manola and Rory Thomas adaptation of Francis Ford Coppola's film Dracula in 1992. IDW republished it this year in black and white without the Mark Chirella colors that I thought were brilliant at the time. And, and I want to talk about that for a minute. But this was... The last work that Magnola did before he went to Hellboy, and it's when he's really starting to emerge at like the top of his game. And have you guys read this? No, sir. No. Oh, it's beautiful. It's, I, saw, it's, I did it see was, the movie, so I have a little point of reference anyway. Well, right. he captures it perfectly. And, you know, uh, Magnola it's, it's, was, was... It's a Magnola was, book. Was, yeah, I mean, so I was just commenting, well, it's a Mike Magnola book, and I love Magnola. And I do, I'm certainly sure that I, you know, saw the book in the stores at the time of, of the floppy release or whatever, how it came out. I got it at the time and was just completely awed by just how it captures Coppola's cinematography uh, um, and the and the pacing of the film. It's just a, a almost perfect adaptation, and and comics rarely get that right. I can only think of a few that I I, I really love, like uh, Simonson's Aliens, but this one is great, and the coloring is just right by one of the, I think one of the best in the business, Mark Turella, who on a side note. After 26 years, DC fired him just a couple of weeks ago or, or retired him or let him go. And he was responsible. Do you guys know who he is? He was the editor, uh, a visual editor at, at DC. He's responsible, came up with the idea of Batman Black and White, of the solo series that they did, of Wednesday Comics. Uh, he was the editor in charge of New Frontier. I mean, his body of work as mm -hmm. somebody to get these projects done is amazing. And DC just right. got rid of But he's on the, also... On, on reprint editions, right? On, no, no. No, no. This was all his. These were all his. He was working on all of these projects. He greenlit and worked on all these projects. I mean, I thought, and cut it out if I'm jumping to, to the point too fast, but... You know, I thought you were going to maybe talk about things like, let's say, DC Archives, where the books look radically different than the floppies, you know, when you when they'd recolored it and put it on that creamy stock and all that. And that, that recoloring of the Kirby stuff. Yeah, no, I, that's for another podcast. This is OK. This sorry. Is, so that's just a taste of what's coming up here on comic book historians. The notion of <laughs> this one is to take this this book that's that's colored very, very well. And instead, release it. IDW releases it in Magnolia's black and white with no distraction of the color. It's like looking at one of those original art books. And it's fantastic. And it's on really nice white paper stock. And it's a beautiful book. And I think there's room, I would say, in that instance, in having both a color version. And sadly, there isn't one. That book hasn't been in, in print for, for 20 years. Uh, so they but they released it. They they made an editorial decision to to not put the color collection out. They that's they, correct. They went with um, no color, or they went with no color or pen and ink. So so it's pure it's pure Magnola, and I appreciate that. And it works in the genre, in the horror genre, and the way that it's done. Even though red is such essential color in terms of the original work, especially you know with the blood and such, it's and so yet sanguine. they take it out. And it's 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 fantastic. <laughs> I recommend it strongly. But in looking at it, it is a shame that you can't really cross compare it with with the original piece and how that was colored. The opposite of that, which takes place in the same year, is from hell, where they are now currently releasing that as a colorized version. And so I wanted to compare huh. that. What saves that, because I initially yeah. heard that and went nuts. But Eddie Campbell is doing it, the colors himself. He's using a very muted palette, except for bright reds every once in a while. And he talks about in interviews how it's only able to work because he's doing it on computer, where he has such a giant spectrum of watered-down colors, and he can actually digitally remove the lines themselves and color them rather than simply painting over something on the art. So... I think it's it's fascinating technology-wise where you can do these new copies and do them in a way that, that allows for a different kind of impressionistic hues and things to the book. So we're in a 
interesting error where you can reprint and alter and it be a positive thing in both of those instances, Ma- as long as question. you have access to both. So from hell, and is that a, is that an Alan Moore book? Oh yeah. That's Alan Moore's yeah. greatest book in my opinion. But Okay. But it was really? originally a black and white book and it's just now being colored. Yes. It was all done in Eddie Campbell, black and white and was considered to be perfect as it was. And no one ever thought, well, let's colorize this. And it, it would be like colorizing Citizen Kane. But it's working because Eddie Campbell is doing it and doing it on the yeah. computer such that he can alter it. He's even making things, certain things, he's calling it clarity, color, and continuity. And he, so he's altering it a little bit, but not the way George Lucas totally screwed well, up Star well, Wars. Okay, good analogy right. there. <laughs> but look, I, we have to embrace the new technology. I mean, I think you can tell right now that that uh, you know, comic book stores with the floppies, you know, the old the the old books. There's economic problems with that. You know, Walmart and Target are about to take it over as like a remaindered thing. You know, so the future of comics is not in the floppies. The problem is is that the floppies are like what is considered collectible, and that's still that little engine is still driving it. But moving forward, you know, God, if they could take uh, Joe Schuster artwork and make it into holograms, or you could spin it around 360 or whatever, bring it on. Right. You know? I mean, I think, I think, you know, more is good. You know, I just assume, I mean, and I know as an artist, you don't always want to show your sketches, but there are all, a lot of these guys, you know, that, uh, you know, as much as uh, financially possible, I, I love the idea of, of the reinterpretation. You know, yeah, having, I, that, I mean, it, having, it, it makes having, things uh, a little fresh. I like looking at the old, the old version and the new version most of the time. Having said that, I'll comic tell books you, at least the books that I bought, like the archives and the Marvel Masterworks, really didn't look very good. They didn't have the same visceral feelings to me that the comics had. And I don't really have the money to buy the current books that are out there. Maybe they got that right that that the books aren't as antiseptic, if you will, you know, as whatever superman archives volume one you know where you've got that pulpy art contrasted with that museum printing i would rather read the chronicles one that came out the paperback Uh, chronicles version than the the archives one that you're talking about absolutely i think the chronicles have a visceral punch that the archives don't have yeah i agree these things should never you shouldn't get above your raisin you know and part of the deal was it was always i always i was too bad that they couldn't make inexpensive superhero movies at one time Wes Craven was going to direct the the Batman movie you you know and I I thought that maybe that was the solution to things because you look at movies like whatever the Lone Ranger you know and and these things where they take these pulpy things and then they try to make a 50 million dollar movie out of it and sometimes it's it's just too much I thought the whole point of the book was that you know, this is kind of lowbrow entertainment, or it was, you know, the music of the 60s, those were created for pre-teens, you know, and if we still love them as old, you know, senior citizens, well, fine. <laughs> I, I, listen, I feel like I was born at the right time. I am definitely a 20th century man, and thank you guys for having me on, because I revel in this stuff. This has been really a lot of fun to talk oh, to you. That's great. Yeah, well, I, I would I say think... pop culturally, I'm I'm definitely a 20th century year old man too. Jim, although he um, he is, but he also likes he's always keeping his eye on the new stuff, and I respect. Well, you know, that. Kanye, I, I, don't have, I, I don't have a, I don't have the same love for the new stuff as Jim does. You know, Kanye but... West is a genius. You just have to understand him. So, right, that whole yeah, right, right yeah. Right. Let me say, in terms of why this is happening a little bit, I think it's interesting that I think. Uh, the artist editions that have, have come out in in the last 10 years has gotten us used to the notion of looking at them without color. And I think that the archive books that uh, Larry's talking about that were so badly done in their recoloring or in their printing on that paper are maybe censorship. Yeah, there's more care now. And so like that Mignola book, uh, Dracula, I think that's a byproduct of the success of the Artist Editions books where we're looking at Kirby without the colors and you know, and really understanding how powerful that is. Maybe, um, right. maybe, but it also may be, there may be a manga influence in the way that these books are coming out now, I think. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's an international yeah. uh, sort of, a, a, you know, style to that, this idea of, of like those, those big black and white collections and stuff. I mean, that's what I think. I think they're supposed to resemble the Japanese collections. And then Alex, 
for homework, I, 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 huh. when we do these sections, oh, I want to, I want to ask the listeners to go on the 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 uh, comic book historians Facebook page. Mm-hmm. In talking about coloring, the one that I'd like to hear some input on is the difference between the 1988 Killing Joke and the 2008 release huh. Killing Joke in terms of coloring and the remastering. Because in the 1988 one, Bolin asked for the coloring to be black and white in the flashbacks, for it to be subtle and understated. And what John Higgins did was the exact opposite of that, with these garish, what Bolin described as garish, hideous, glaring purple and pinks, that the uh, the flashbacks were all done in orange, that he envisioned the flashbacks being looking like Lynch's eraser head, and instead he uh. got this thing that was radically different. And so when they did the 20th anniversary, he went back and he recolored it completely. And I'm curious which one people prefer, because for me, when you are exposed to that initial one, that's your version of the killing joke. So I I enjoy the Higgins version. And I thought that the other one, while looking more like a 21st century, like a new, like a contemporary book, lost something in the translation. But I respect Nolan for wanting to do it. So I'd like to hear from other people about what they thought about those two books. I mean, to me, that sounds like that now you're into the George Lucas territory of, yeah, you know, real, really changing the work, not just putting color on it or something, you know. Well, by the original, because right, I mean, uh, to this day, I still was. right, and uh, I feel that the that first Star Wars, even though it's not as doesn't look <laughs> as pristine, uh-huh. I mean, that's clearly the uh, to me that hit that hits my heart. The the initial Star Wars, yeah. No, I mean, maybe. maybe. I mean, you know, like but I think instance, my son, um, I think my son likes the newer stuff more because it's poppy and more cartoonish. Right. And uh, whereas me, I like the dark edge. You know, I just see the arm of the monster and I can imagine the rest of it. You know, it, it's just different. It's, there's almost something generational there. One of the things, you know, you mentioned Star Wars and that's fine. But one of the things that's really interesting is how Paramount revised Star Trek and yeah. in a lot of ways, they did the right decision by upgrading those special effects. I feel that if they want Star Trek to be in the public eye at all from the 1960s, they had to do something. Of course, the amazing thing is if you see Star Trek on HD, you see Leonard Nimoy's makeup line. And he has terrible acne, too, by the way. So that's um, <laughs> that's that really making Star Trek, which was the best that we had in 1976, puts it in an Ed Wood realm, you know, where it's beginning to look a little. It's, it's because that the definition is so high, you know. So but anyway, that's funny. Yeah. But, you know, I'm an Orville guy myself now, just so you know. <laughs> I well, like the or- I, I like the Orville like- more than uh, Star Trek Discovery. Also, I'm going to throw that out there. Well, so, so or, 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 Orville is definitely like a continuation of Star Trek TOS, and uh, yeah, it, and and, and it, it feels like you're watching the next generation, I mean, Star Trek Next Generation, right? I mean, I feel like it's TOS, and I feel like this is such a it's like a like you know the Norwals or the computer wrote it, you know, by just combining all the old Gene Roddenberry Star Treks into a database and spitting out a script. Having said that, Orville is great. You know what I'm saying? It's just brain fun food. Show. It's a fun it's show. Brain. It's just, yeah, that's right. But before this actually turns into a goodbye, everybody, can I say a thing or two? Uh, Being the guest sure, of the of week? Of course, please. Sorry, yes. to, to, you, know, you, can, you can edit this like you actually asked me to do this in the broadcast. <laughs> hey, so I want to talk to I, I like to keep as much of the natural stuff as I can, actually. That's, yeah. I, that's fine. Yeah, let's not let's not uh, produce it or anything. But hello, everybody <laughs> that's listening today, and uh, you know my friend Don Mangus, and, and you know the usual suspects, and everybody else, and the and the um, people from the comic book historians Facebook page. I wanted to say hi to you. I appreciate Alex for inviting me on. I hope to do a, a streaming radio station pretty soon, and it's going to be pretty much uh, involving like the music of the Beach Boys and specifically like the archival releases that they've released over the last 10 or 15 years. And, they, you know, they remix good vibrations and stereo and all kinds of stuff that even if you own those albums, I want to put it into sort of a radio station format, you know, where you 
you know, have the excitement of having a curated playlist and there'll be some surf music on and a lot of new groups that are doing, you know, the whole point of my streaming service is to is really kind of embrace the, the, the fading lights of the 20th century. You know, the things that we're interested in are, are fading away. The sales of like, like Elvis or whatever are becoming smaller and smaller. You know, these things of the 20th century. The, the Beach Boys have little stronger legs because they write about the history of America and Western migration and the call of the Pacific Ocean, you know? So yeah. where a Beatles song is just, this, you know, Eleanor Rigby, you know, whatever. I mean, not, not 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 to demean the Beatles, but I'm just saying the Beatles. If they're there about goes it, the audition. The Beatles. All right, the Beatles are about the '60s. The Beatles wrote the '60s, and they were in turn influenced right. by the '60s. But the Beatles right, right. is much more about the history of America. Okay, so I'm just saying. Yeah, no, forward, I, I I know what you're saying. I, I see. Moving that. forward, they give Helter the Beatles. Moving forward, they give the Beach Boys a certain legs that. Artists like Bob Dylan don't have moving forward because they teach They put it in schools and stuff. So right. anyway, that's the radio station I'm going to do. You can, you cool. can certainly cut that for time. But I hope that, you know, comic book historians consider look, finding me on Facebook. I'd like you to consider uh, friending me so that I can keep you informed about uh, the things that I'll be doing. And I certainly hope to have Alex and Jim on the streaming station. What I want to do is right now what I'm thinking about is playing these crazy songs about superheroes whether it be you know superman by rem or if you guys have heard those great things from the 60s have you ever heard the dan and dale album the sensational guitars of dan and dale where they're doing the batman theme and there's a robin theme and really it's these great musicians studio musicians that are just totally ad-libbing these songs about batman the songs i'm talking about by Dan and Dale, there's an album, some kind of album. You find it on Spotify. It's like, you know, the hits of DC Comics. If you've ever heard, like, there's a guy named Arthur, and he does a Metamorpho song and a Justice League song and a Plastic uh, okay. Man song. That's cool. You guys should definitely uh-huh. spin those because uh, they're great. So I hope to have you guys on at some point, you know, some cross cool. references. So I, have, I hope I haven't said too yeah, much. Yeah, you should. Uh, no, that's great. You should talk. You know, Pete Coogan is a friend of ours. He's a, a professor um, in uh, St. Louis, and he's been on the show a few times. And he has uh, he knows a lot of these esoteric superhero songs. Like there's one that's like this Harlem or Motown version of a Captain Marvel song that he was singing to me one time. Uh, you guys would have a good conversation about that, actually. Well, I think the idea of, you know, finding the long list of songs about superheroes, you know, and that could mm-hmm. be a continuing thing because I want to do podcasts. But I also think that there is an immediacy to saying it's live, you know, like your show. You say, well, you know, if you dial in at noon, we're on, you know, I mean, we'll right. see if right. that philosophy is true or not, you know, but it's sort of like the thing that you'll watch whatever's on TV. So you see Goodfellows every day. As opposed to putting in a DVD or something, you know, from off the shelf, you're too lazy to do that, you know. So anyway, I think there's an urgency to streaming. My radio station will be the best radio station in the world. And for the devotees of, you know, James Bond and uh, surf music and the Tarantino movies and the, the moon landing, we're trying we're going to try to shoehorn all that into a radio format. And it's just a question of anybody wants a radio station in 2019 you know as opposed to just having your spotify playlist which is great too so so alex if you wonder why i'm so weird nice. that's why okay so thanks again everybody for another great episode of the comic book historian podcast not only do we talk about comic books but it looks like today we went through the fields of pulps music movies etc thanks uh jim for uh, joining us today and also larry w king uh, Larry Wayne King, you were fantastic today. Thanks so much. I, I'm excited about you coming on. If you ever have time for a future episode, we, we'd always love to have you back. And thanks again for listening, everybody. 